good morning <laughs> and happy Christmas tide. Um, what a wonderful, rainy but not too cold day to gather um, in the midst of Christmas and New Year celebrations. For my family, at least, the days between December 25th and January 1st all felt like a sort of no man's land in space and time. Uh, we're all together enjoying rest and sleeping at weird hours of the day and eating indiscriminately, forgetting what day of the week it is. Um, this year, of course, has felt like that since March. So it's a little less sacred feeling, but still, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. One of the holiday traditions in Daniel and Mai's home is to get a live tree every year. And uh, this live tree every year is always bone dry by December 25th. It does not matter if we get it from a lot or pre-cut it or if we get it three weeks out or 10 days out. Uh, it is always like a tinderbox on Christmas. Um, I don't like candles within three feet of it. So if you have any fresh tree hacks, I would love to hear them after service. Um, there was also this one year where we put our tree in the back of our truck, uh, but that's actually Daniel's favorite story to tell, so you should definitely ask him about it later. <laughs> and like Ben mentioned, today is the last Sunday of 2020. So yeah, we're kind of in a weird in-between sort of space. What to say in the midst of our holidays as this year draws to a close. The last Sunday of 2020. How are you? What a year. This year has been such a wild year that we are tired of hearing how wild a year it's been. After this year, I never want to hear the word unprecedented ever again. <laughs> what a year. So let's take stock. We're in the thick of a global pandemic. It's already claimed over 1,700,000 lives. And many of our regular rhythms and norms have shifted drastically. And it's not over yet. This year, we also witnessed protests against racial injustice and demands for systemic reform in this country. And these protests quickly grew to a global scale. We also had an intense and divisive election cycle. And Australia was on fire in January, if you can remember back that far. And also, there were murder hornets. It's been a hard year for our community personally as well. I think about the losses that this year has brought for so many of us. We've lost loved ones. Dear members of our family have passed away and left us to mourn in a season where we're not encouraged to gather with others. We've had to watch kids struggle being away from their friends and trying to do school online. We've lost jobs or left jobs, or changed jobs, or started jobs and had their descriptions changed right out from underneath us. We felt unprepared. We've had to cancel long-awaited vacations and ministry retreats and camping trips and study abroad. We've missed time with our families. We've had doors closed and felt confused as God seemed to change course on the calling we'd heard. We've moved across the Pacific Northwest and across the world. We struggled with health challenges and chronic illness and mental illness. We felt the strain of social divisions in our personal relationships. We felt a loss of friends, loss of family, loss of familiarity. Dear friends have moved away. Senior years of high school, different. Freshman years of high school, different. 
doing college different, retirement plans changed. It hasn't all been bad. We've also celebrated new babies born and new babies getting ready to make their grand entrances into the world. We've celebrated anniversaries, engagements, graduations, and personal and professional milestones. We've learned how to sew masks and plant gardens and teach or do therapy or hold a conference online. We've learned how to mute and unmute ourselves on Zoom, I hope. <laughs> We've stepped into hard conversations and sought reconciliation where there was injury. Our compassion for our neighbors has increased, and we've sought to find creative ways to show love and share Christ in a really difficult time. We've redefined what it means to be family and have caught a glimpse of the kingdom. We're asking new questions in search of new answers. So there's just some of 2020, but I'm curious. If you would be so brave, if you would be so vulnerable to just hold your hands open in your lap and close your eyes, you can also totally just lower your gaze to stare at your hands if closing your eyes is uncomfortable. And just to yourself, finish this sentence. 2020 was blank. Just to yourself, take stock and listen. 2020 was blank. What can we say at the end of such a year? It's either wonderfully or absurdly ironic that in the Christian calendar, we're approaching Epiphany. You see, in addition to the calendar that starts in January and ends in December, for centuries, about 1,500 years or so, the Christian church has traveled through time abiding by the Christian year, which is oriented around the life and ministry of Jesus. So the Christian year actually starts in Advent um, as we are actively waiting and hoping and yearning with a darkening world for the light of Christ to arrive. Advent is a season of lament where we prepare room in our hearts and our lives to welcome Christ among us. Then we celebrate Christ's arrival. That was two days ago, if you missed it. <laughs> Christmas is the celebration that God has acted definitively, irrevocably, and paradoxically toward us by transgressing the human divine boundary and giving us God's own self at union with humanity. Peace on earth, goodwill to all. But in the Christian calendar, Christmas is a festival, and it lasts 12 days. I'm not sure why it's 12. I never actually found out. Um, but I make up that it has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but that's entirely my speculation, so do not hold to that too tightly. Um, but I wonder so because Christmastide lasts 12 days and culminates in the holiday of Epiphany, which celebrates God's revealing of God's self to the whole world, right? Israel and Gentiles, which is symbolized in the arrival of the Magi. So Epiphany celebrates the revelation that the Magi receive in seeing Jesus. And it strikes me that Epiphany is basically a celebration that says that because God has acted towards us, we are a people who can lay claim to a particular kind of knowledge. 
Because God has come, we have received something. We can hold to something. We can say something. Now, at this point, the liturgical calendar diehards present among us are thinking, Lauren, it's the third day of Christmas tide. We aren't ready for Epiphany yet. Now, I hear you, liturgical calendar diehards, I hear you. But the thing is, by January 6th or the Sunday nearest it, we'll probably be back in Mark. And if you've been listening to Bennett all these last few weeks, you'll probably know that Epiphany has defined anything like revelation or awareness or true seeing is a long time coming in Mark. Mark colors his characters confused. So I couldn't help myself to consider what epiphany might mean for us as we close this calendar year. The Christian calendar, which has formed the faith of the church for centuries, communicates to us that because God has acted and answered our yearning and lament, we are a people who can say something, a people of epiphany. And this year, more than any other in my life so far, I am intrigued and even troubled by this claim. What can we say at the end of this year? What does it mean to be a people of epiphany? The story of the Magi visiting the Christ child is the text of epiphany, and we'll journey with it this morning. So I'll be reading this story, which is found in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, from the ESV. But I'll be making a couple of small modifications just to bring out some of the nuances of the Greek a little bit better. So if you'd like, please turn to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. All right. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was alarmed, frightened, and troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he was continually inquiring badgering, even hounding them, for it was essential for him to know where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went continually before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they joyfully rejoiced exceedingly with very great, overwhelming joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
I think it's a little ironic that while the Magi's story is the text of Epiphany, there's a lot here that's actually shrouded in mystery that we just don't know, and that invites us to wonder. So we're told that the wise men's story takes place after Jesus was born, so that's after the shepherds had come and gone and all that. Um, but importantly, though, these are the days of Herod the king. Herod the king is more precisely Herod the Great, whose 40-year rule was nearing its end at this point. Herod was partly Jewish, and he was a traitor to the Jewish people. He served the Roman Empire as a client king, so he extracted exorbitant taxes and labor from his own people to give to Rome. Historians of his time documented him as ruthless, violent, self-absorbed, narcissistic, and even paranoid in his old age. He murdered three of his own sons on suspicion that they would take his throne. And he executed Jews who spoke out against Rome in a way that alarmed Rome itself. So Herod's are the days into which Jesus is born. And Herod's are the days in which the Magi journey into Judea. And that brings us to the Magi. So first of all, they are not three and they are not kings. Uh, we're actually a bit unsure of who they are and where they come from. They could be from Persia, Babylon, Arabia, Northern Africa. Not sure. And the term magi, which in the ESV is translated wise men, is itself a bit slippery. So it could refer to a learned class of astrologers and dream interpreters, right? Sages who could read the signs of the times and who represented the best wisdom of the Gentile world. Magi is also simply a plural of magos, a mage, someone who practices sorcery or magic. So Simon the magician in Acts 8 is called a magos, and that's a similar term. The term could also signify a class of Zoroastrian priests and kingmakers from Persia. So these would be court officials who were charged with teaching the young princes the wisdom of Zoroaster and of ruling well. And there are various arguments for and against these different identities, each with its own merit, but we really can't know for sure. But what we do know is why the Magi are here. We saw the king of the Jews start at its rising. We saw it come up, and so we made ready, and we have traveled far from home, and so here we are in Jerusalem to worship the new king. Where is he? The Magi certainly traveled with a large caravan of attendants, like a diplomatic party. I can imagine them rolling up into Jerusalem with an entourage of attendants and pack animals laden with spices and textiles and treasures, a display of their own court's wealth and wisdom. Gathering such an expedition would have taken weeks at least to pull together. Then there was the journey through the wilderness and the desert. Note what the Magi say, though. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising, and so we've come here to worship him. The Magi saw the king's star, double-checked, yep, that's the one, and hastily journeyed to Jerusalem, right? Because that's where the king of the Jews would be, right? Certainly, Herod must be so pleased for us to welcome him. Was it one of his sons or one of his nephews who would be the king? Where is he, Herod? We want to pay our respects. But the Magi's announcement does not seem to bring Herod joy. In fact, the throne room grows uncomfortably still as the dawning awareness in Herod's eyes erupts into alarm across his face. 
And as the Magi are escorted out of the palace, they notice attendants and Jerusalem elites starting to whisper in rushed and strained voices. Herod was alarmed, frightened, and deeply troubled to hear about this new king and all Jerusalem with him. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel was a prophetic cry, but not all Israel listened to their prophets. And the coming of a new king would not necessarily be good news to those in Jerusalem, especially the elites who were indebted to the current regime for their wealth and power. The Magi are seeking the king of the Jews, but they are seeking in the days of King Herod, the client king of Rome. And Herod and Rome have assets and interests to protect. So Herod loses it. He assembles the chief priests and the scribes of Jerusalem, those who uh, read and knew the holy text, who'd memorized the law, who read and copied and read and copied the prophecies, right? These were people with great knowledge. So Herod assembled them all together and inquired of them, where would the Christ be born? Now a note on this. Herod did not just inquire like objective and impartial and scientific like. Um, He inquired and badgered and hounded these scribes in an ongoing fashion. He did not let them get any rest until they had turned up the prophecy. And these scribes knew their texts. They knew about the prophesied Messiah. So sooner or later, they find the prophecy and they tell Herod that Christ is in Bethlehem. So Herod, now armed with the location of this new king, secretly calls the Magi back and questions them. When did they see the star? I wonder what they're thinking at this point. Were they growing anxious or uncertain on their journey? Were they questioning their assumption to go to Jerusalem? Did their unease grow as Herod continued to question them? Or did they remain confident in their status as foreign dignitaries? So after they tell Herod when the star appeared, the king issues a command, go and search for the child. And and when you found him, bring me word so I can worship him too. Herod then sends them to Jerusalem. And just like that, something has changed. You see that while the Magi entered Judah voluntarily, freely, for the sole purpose of worshiping this new king, they are now ordered onward. Where they before stood as guests, now they stand as spies. They do Herod's bidding now they find themselves in a compromised place. They are now commanded to go and find the child and to return with his whereabouts. The Magi saw the star and went to worship the child as was right, but empire can only feed empire's own preservation and propagation and assertion. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed at the thought of losing their puppet king. I wonder when it dawned on the Magi that the cords of self-centeredness, of greed, of power and of fear had wrapped around them too and bound them into Herod's evil web. Their ignorance did not protect them or keep them separate from systems of evil. They became woefully complicit. And after listening to Herod, the Magi continue on their way, now turned south towards Bethlehem. I wonder how they felt, what they thought. 
I wonder if they knew about Herod's reputation and felt uneasy about doing his bidding, or if they assumed that he meant his word about worshiping the king. I wonder if they considered disobeying his orders. But they must have felt lost because when the star, the star that they had originally seen at its rising, when it appeared before them again, the Magi lose their minds with joy. Um, The Greek makes it awkward. There's so much joy, like it's difficult to read. Um, They are so extravagantly happy to see their star. And as far as we know, they hadn't seen it since it first appeared all those months ago when it prompted their preparations for going to Jerusalem. The Magi perhaps assumed that they knew what it meant before go to Jerusalem, but their experience had proved otherwise. So imagine their joy when the star showed itself again and then proceeded to move before them continually, guiding them step by step to the exact house that the new king could be found in and stopped there, marking the spot. Now at this point, we should talk about the star. This is a very special, very mysterious star that we are dealing with. Because the first time we read of it, it acts like a normal star. It rises like the others according to the planetary charts, right? The Magi track it. They know what it means. But now here, the same star is said to literally go before them step by step and stop physically over Jesus' house. Normal planetary stars do not act this way. So it makes sense that there have been many interpretations throughout history about what was going on with this star. And it's not really important for us today to survey all of them, but I think it's at least helpful to understand that ancient peoples, including the Jewish people, believed that stars were animate, spiritual beings, kind of like angels. Their cosmology didn't include a vast spatial cosmos that surrounded a round earth, but they actually believed that the sky was the floor of the heavenly realm, and therefore stars were like angelic spirits who interacted with the heavenly and earthly realms. And many early church theologians interpreted the star to actually be an angel that led the Magi to Jesus. This is just one interpretation, um, but it and many others all point in common to the fact that this is a divine intervention. It helped the Magi find their way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. This leg of their journey was in this way perhaps very different from their first leg. And once the star had stopped, the Magi enter the home and see the toddler Jesus with his mother Mary. And they fall down and they worship him. They lay elaborate treasures fit for a king before him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I wish we could know what stories they shared as they broke bread together and what surprise they all felt. Mary to be welcoming such extravagant foreign dignitaries into her small home, serving them and watching them adore her son. The Magi to find the new king of the Jews, the king of a very special star in such a humble and back road sort of place enjoying closeness with his mother. But the Magi's journey is not over. They have to report back to Herod. But here, here is where our story really gets going. The Magi in their sleep are warned in a dream that they should not go back to Herod. Who warned them? Early tradition holds that an angel warned them in the dream, but we're unsure. Did they all dream the same dream and wake up and compare and decide that this was a sign not to go back to Herod? 
maybe? What did the dream tell them? Did it communicate Herod's evil intent or did it simply warn them to disobey him without giving any reason? Did God explain to the Magi that God was a fugitive in this land? Were they surprised by this revelation or did it fit with what the tension in their chests and that sinking feeling in their guts had been telling them for many weeks now? Again, we don't know. But what we do know is that the Magi receive this word and they follow it. Like they had learned to follow the star step by step to the new king, they now take this dream and bet their lives on it. How striking that their only salvation from dealing death is their enlightenment to the danger of their reality. The Magi have their eyes opened and they do not shut them again. They depart Bethlehem for their own country by another road. And you know they did not leave Bethlehem the same way they left their palaces in the east. Gone were the brightly colored robes and sparkling gifts. Gone was the easy and confident step of a party of ambassadors well within their rights of entry. Now the Magi leave under cover of night, moving quietly in muted and understated robes that they borrowed from their Jerusalem hosts or their Bethlehem hosts, rather. The Magi travel light and move fast. They cannot be found out, for they are now unwelcome guests. They leave by a different road. And as they flee from the evil of the days of Herod, their lives turn Christiform. As they flee from the evil of the days of Herod, they usher in the days of Christ. Because just as the Magi flee, so too does the Christ with his mother and father flee from Herod, Joseph being warned in a dream by an angel just one verse after the Magi leave. The Christ of Israel, the king of the Jews, flees Bethlehem, becomes a refugee, seeks asylum in the land of Egypt to escape certain death in Bethlehem. And the Magi become participants in Christ. And the Magi represent Christ. They represent him. Their very lives, their movements are harbingers of his own movement. They exit from the evil of the days of Herod and enter into the days of Christ as a testimony and foretaste of the kingdom come. So what does it mean to be a people of epiphany? For them and for us. I think it's quite normal that when life gets unstable and when we get jostled out of our comfort zones for us to seek some sort of reassurance, some sort of knowledge to hold on to so that we feel less appended, less out at sea, so that we feel more like a people who have received revelation and can make sense of it. At this point, the knowledge of the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem becomes particularly appealing What can we know? What can we be certain of? What are the facts? But it's interesting, at least in this story, that for all their knowledge, the scribes stay in Jerusalem. It's the Magi who venture on. Soren Kierkegaard pondered this and commented thus. Although the scribes could explain where the Messiah should be born, they did not accompany the wise men to seek him. 
Similarly, we may know the whole of Christianity and make no movement. What a difference. The Magi had only a rumor to go by, but it moved them to make that long journey. The scribes were much better informed, much better versed, but it did not make them move. Who had the more truth? What a vexation it must have been for the Magi that the scribes who gave them the news they wanted remained quiet in Jerusalem. We are being mocked, they might have thought. For indeed, what an atrocious self-contradiction that they should have the knowledge and yet remain still. We are tempted to suppose they wish to fool us, unless we admit that they are fooling only themselves. So what does it mean to be a people of epiphany? I don't know where you sit as we close this calendar year and begin a new Christian year. Maybe you're at a loss, feeling tired and frustrated and lonely. Maybe you carry grief and confusion. Maybe you're feeling you have new wine and it's about to burst your old wineskins. If so, receive the epiphany of the Magi. Maybe you're listening in or sitting here in this tent thinking I'm cold and this woman keeps asking the same question instead of giving answers. And what am I supposed to do with that? Um, if so, receive the epiphany of the Magi. Maybe you're somewhere in between or altogether different. The epiphany of the Magi is waiting eagerly for you. Perhaps it can help us all to remember that the epiphany we can properly claim is not a certainty in our heaps of knowledge or a sense of reassurance that comes from having it all figured out. Perhaps it is the revelation of taking one step in front of another down a path with an unclear destination, following a star or a dream, awake to the dangers of our being strangers in a strange land. Perhaps the revelation we can properly claim is one that strips away the marks of our status and our safety and our wisdom and locates us with the forgotten of the earth. A revelation that bids us take a different road home. Perhaps it is in this sort of movement that something can be properly said, not by us, but of us and through us. Perhaps this is epiphany. Maybe epiphany simply means being encountered by God and looking a little bit more like God as a result. Sometimes epiphany takes the form of disorientation. Sometimes revelation feels like bewilderment. Do we trust the God who turns ambassadors into wanted men? Who makes a king a refugee? Do we trust the God who takes us to unexpected and forsaken places? Who guides us by stars and whispers to us in dreams? Who sends us down a different road and transforms us into harbingers of the kingdom under cover of night? Can we stop and notice long enough to be encountered by this God? When we meet him, will we let him shape Christ in our lives?
will we take a different road? Perhaps more pressingly, if we don't, can we even say we saw Christ at all? What does it mean to be an epiphany people today? Let me pray for us. God, we come before you at the end of this year in the midst of seasons of celebration and lament of carrying much. We give these things to you and ask you to meet us. We ask you to meet us even as we're unsure what this means. We ask you to be with us in moments where it feels like you are very far away. God, we ask you to make us a people of epiphany. A people whose lives speak the revelation of your coming. A people who are continually changed. Thank you for this time to gather. Thank you for your blessing of being with us. Amen.